walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Hey, welcome back to the Camino Podcast. I'm Dave Whitson. This is episode 5, and probably the last of 2015. Thanks for listening. Hopefully you're, like me, on vacation right now, settling into the holiday. And while it's cold outside, thinking about hiking and being on pilgrimage. In this episode, I speak with Professor of Divinity at Yale Divinity School, Harold Attridge, about St. James. What do we know? What does the historical record say? And where does the tradition and the legend surrounding St. James come from? I also speak with Mirka Martin about her pilgrimage on the Camino Frances, and hear some stories. And then, to help you out, if you're looking for something to read, I've put together a short list of fiction to consider that's set along the Camino de Santiago. Dr. Harold Attridge is the Sterling Professor of Divinity at Yale Divinity School at Yale University, and he joins me now on the Camino podcast. Thanks for speaking with me, Dr. Attridge. Happy to be with you today. So one of the reasons that I wanted to speak with you is, you know, I've been interested in and involved with the Camino de Santiago for a long time, and I've read a lot of references to St. James. I've looked at some of the passages in the Bible where he comes up, but it seems like the Bible actually offers us very little insight into the life of of Santiago or St. James the Elder. So I was interested in speaking with someone who has given this a great deal of thought and study. What exactly do we know about St. James the Elder? Well, you're quite right. The uh, Bible doesn't tell us an awful lot. Um, what we know is that um, James was the brother of John, and the, both of them were the uh, sons of Zebedee, mm-hmm. and that uh, the two of them apparently were recruited very early by Jesus in his uh, public ministry. Uh, all of the Gospels uh, talk about um, uh, Jesus making disciples uh, at the Sea of Galilee, and um, these two young men apparently were involved in a fishing business with their uh, their father, and uh, they heeded Jesus' call to come and uh, be fishers of uh, men or fishers of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they appear uh, a couple of times in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke mm-hmm. as part of um, the the intimate circle of Jesus' disciples. Uh, eventually, they came to be twelve, but uh, there were some who were there from the start. And they seem to have been uh, very close to Jesus. So they're with him, uh, for instance, at the uh, Transfiguration, mm-hmm. uh, whatever event that was, or however we uh, imagine that, but some special revelation or understanding of the relationship of uh, Jesus to uh, the divine. They were there for that. Um, they were there uh, sleeping, apparently, at the Garden of uh, Gethsemane. <laughs> uh, and um, they pop up in a couple of other places. Some of the most interesting um, uh, stories are told in the Gospel of uh, Mark, version, although they're parallel elsewhere, um, uh, and uh, in chapter chapter 10, they talk about um, G- uh, uh, John and James uh, looking for special privileges mm-hmm. when Jesus comes into his kingdom. 
uh, apparently they, uh, if this this story is correct, and I think it has, uh, you know, a lot of verisimilitude about it, mm-hmm. uh, these young men were excited by uh, the kind of preaching that Jesus was doing about the kingdom of God and understood him to be somehow uh, designated to be the king in this uh, forthcoming kingdom. Mm-hmm. Whatever Jesus himself thought about this imagery, it was there in the uh, environment and certainly there in the way in which the stories were told. Uh, and John and James um, thought that they should have uh, some sort of special uh, position when the uh, kingdom got established. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jesus um, has to uh, rebuke them and uh, <laughs> tell them, uh, no, that's not quite what this kingdom is all about. Uh, Matthew has a slightly different version of the story, and uh, uh, Palmsley requests for special permission or special position off on the mother of of uh, John and James. Hmm. In any case, uh, they are these uh, these enthusiasts for Jesus, and as they're portrayed in in uh, Mark, they um, have a sense of their own position within this uh, uh, this forthcoming reign of God as uh, close disciples of Jesus. There, there, there's another little story uh, in Mark uh, three seventeen. Mm-hmm. Uh, about uh, the name that uh, they get, mm. um, and uh, whether they had this name or whether Jesus gave this name to them as a nickname, a little bit unclear. Um, I, th- I think the latter is the case, and I think Jesus had a uh, a knack for uh, naming people. Uh, mm-hmm. We know he named uh, Peter Rocky, right? Right. And said, on, on this rock I will build my church, a uh, very firm foundation. The guy denies him three times ever, you know? Uh, in any case, he ca- he calls uh, John and James the sons of thunder, mm-hmm. uh, which suggests that they might have been, what, uh, very zealous, might have been hotheads, mm-hmm. might have been um, at least very enthusiastic about uh, their commitment to, to Jesus, and their enthusiasm bubbles over into this story about their uh, looking for a special um, uh, position in the kingdom. So we know, uh, well, we have these stories about uh, their relationship to Jesus. I think we can be pretty certain that John and James were um, were in the inner circle of Jesus' disciples during his uh, public ministry, and they were there at important moments in his uh, uh, his ministry and there in Jerusalem uh, in his last days. Um, and then uh, we have uh, a, uh, the only other bit of biblical data that uh, we really have on James comes in the uh, the book of Acts mm. uh, in uh, chapter, well, he's there with the, uh, uh, the other apostles in chapter 1, but then in chapter 12 uh, we have the report of his um, martyrdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that uh, early Christians were uh, well, I ran up against some uh, hostility and uh, persecution um, in the uh, early days there in Jerusalem. They were not always welcomed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know about the martyrdom of Stephen that's reported in um, Acts uh, 7. Sure. Uh, and then in uh, Acts 12, we have the report that uh, under uh, Herod Antipas, King Herod, who was Herod Antipas, not Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa I, mm-hmm. sorry, no uh, who reigned from 41 to 44, um, that uh, James was uh, martyred during that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, I think he probably died, as did uh, Stephen, uh, for the same reasons that Jesus died. These uh, guys were uh, were preaching the gospel about uh, the reign of God, which was the reign of justice and uh, peace and truth that was inimical to the, uh, the powers that be. And the powers that be didn't like this kind of language, so they mm-hmm. viewed them as political... Uh, 
uh, threats and uh, had them executed. So that's what happens to James around 40, uh, between 41 and 44, um, this intimate uh, disciple, um, close friend of Jesus, um, uh, met uh, the fate that is uh, predicted in, uh, in Mark 10. Do we have any sources to draw upon for this era beyond the New Testament? For Is there any other information that we can draw about James's life from outside of the Bible? No, I'm afraid we don't. Yeah. Um, but we have uh, some reports uh, about uh, the family of Jesus in um, later sources, um, and uh, we have reports about the uh, leading disciples in, in Jerusalem, in Paul, in Galatians. Mm-hmm. But no, we don't have any special information about James. So tradition holds that James traveled to the Iberian Peninsula, so there's nothing surviving from his life to speak to that. Where where does where do these legends come from? Where does this tradition come from? Yeah, um, it's it's kind of hard to pin down exactly <laughs> when uh, the the tradition emerges that James uh, evangelized um, uh, Spain. We do have uh, early Christian uh, traditions about the apostles being. Um, sent to various parts of, uh, of the world. Uh, there are uh, things called the Acts of the Apostles from the second and third century, mm-hmm. and we don't have we don't have one for James. We have uh, Peter and John and Andrew and uh, Thomas, um, but no James in this list. And a lot of them share the uh, the story that after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, uh, when the disciples uh, and, and the apostles realized that they had to actually go and uh, do stuff. Uh, they divided up the uh, the world by lot, and uh, various disciples um, uh, were sent to various places depending on uh, what the lot showed. Um, but we don't have any uh, any. We, so we have, for instance, uh, Thomas um, is an example of this. Uh, Thomas gets India, and um, he doesn't want to go to India, uh, and so Jesus has to sell him as a slave to a merchant who happens to be traveling in that direction. Uh, so there are all sorts of interesting little uh, little twists in these these stories, but we don't have one of these for James. Uh, so what do we know about uh, early Christianity in in uh, in Spain? Were there any of the uh, the immediate disciples of Jesus who made it that far? Um, well, we don't have uh, an, anything that would uh, support that notion. What we have is Paul's um, uh, reference in uh, Romans um, toward the end of his career, uh, as he's getting ready to go up to Jerusalem for the last time and deliver there the collection he's been taking up for a, a while. He uh, he writes to Rome and he uh, he wants to solve some problems there or set them th- some things straight and gives us his marvelous uh, epistle to the Romans. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end, he, he talks about his intention to uh, use Rome and the Christian community there as a base for further missionary activity in Spain. Hmm. And um, his, his goal is to go where no one has gone before, hmm. uh, at least uh, no uh, Christian missionary to Gentiles has gone before. So uh, that would seem to suggest that Paul, writing in the mid-50s, so a decade or so after the death of James, mm-hmm. had it in mind to conduct a mission to Spain and thought that he was uh, starting uh, something new. Of course, he may be ignoring some stuff that had gone on there before. We know that there were Christians in Rome before Paul got there, and uh, maybe some of those Christians had gone on to, to Spain, too. But uh, we don't have any uh, evidence of, uh, of James uh, having done so. 
And is there reason to believe that Paul would have been aware of James's movements and where he was likely to have traveled? Um, well, Paul was in touch with the uh, the church in Rome, and mm-hmm. um, he he did, as I say, wanted uh, wanted to, and uh, at that point in his career. Uh, establish you know, some strong ties of solidarity between the Gentile Christian world and the uh, Jewish Christians in Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had been there uh, um, a couple of times uh, prior to that uh, that intended visit. Uh, the, the, his uh, report about that is in uh, the Epistle of the Galatians, and he talks about going there shortly after his conversion, so that would have been in the 30s, and then for what we now label the Apostolic Council sometime in the late 40s, probably. Um, and uh, so he knew Peter and, and John and the other James, James, mm-hmm. the brother of the Lord, uh, who was uh, there at the time. Um, so he had some contacts. Mm-hmm. It but, seems uh, like... but no, he not, didn't necessarily have to uh, keep tabs on all the, uh, yeah. the uh, 12. <laughs> yeah. It, do, do we know unusually little about James relative to the other apostles? No, we don't know an awful lot about most of the apostles. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we have, as I say, these uh, Acts of the Apostles, and a lot of them are quite legendary mm-hmm. um, and have all sorts of interesting uh, embellishments um, uh, that, uh, you know, talking seals and various other things <laughs> <laughs> that, that come from folklore rather than from any kind of uh, history. So, no, we don't. Um, and... You know, we we do know that um, that uh, early Christian uh, missionaries made it quite far afield. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, going back to Thomas for a minute, uh, Thomas is supposed to have been the the apostle to uh, India, and he is uh, revered as such by uh, Indian Christians. But uh, from a second century report, um, we uh, we have information that the first apostle to the India that we know of is modern India, the Malabar coast, rather than uh, the Indus Valley and what we now know of as Pakistan, that uh, the first apostle there was Bartholomew. Hmm. Uh, and um, that's, uh, at least he was revered as the founding apostle uh, by Christians who were there and visited by Christians from Egypt at the end of the second century. A fellow hmm. named Antinus made the voyage. Uh, so we know Christians got around, and it's possible that um, some of the early disciples of Jesus from Palestine made it as far as Spain, but as I say, Paul didn't think so. Uh, or Paul at least didn't seem to indicate any knowledge of um, activity there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly we don't know uh, where most of these guys wound up. Do you have any theories for why James, out of all of the apostles, ended up as based in Santiago de Compostela, the mm. subject of this third major pilgrimage in the in the Catholic world. Why? Why James? Right. Um, well, uh, the, I think there, there are a couple of, uh, of things that might be going on here. Uh, there seem to be some, some uh, traditions prior to the so-called discovery of the uh, relics of James mm-hmm. um, in the uh, early 9th century. Um, that have him going to uh, to Spain. They're kind of fleeting references and um, the like, and what they're based on isn't totally clear. My my hunch is that there's a bit of a rivalry between different um, Christian communities in Spain uh, in the Visigothic period and then uh, in the uh, post-Islamic uh, conquest period. Um, and 
some of them revered their connection with um, with Rome. This is the case for Toledo, uh, for instance, yeah. uh, which uh, uh, has a connection with Rome and therefore with Peter. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if you want to have kind of a, uh, if you're let's say a bishop, and you want to have a tie to uh, uh, the uh, the founding moment of the uh, the Christian uh, movement, mm-hmm. and um, a major tie uh, of a rival bishop down the road is um, is already uh, taken up uh, with another major apostle. Well, you got to look for someone else. <laughs> And I think that's in fact what what happened in the uh, early ninth century, that um, the, um, the the I think in fact there were some bones that were discovered, um, and they might well have been bones from uh, a burial of the Roman period, mm-hmm. whether they were Christian bones or not remains to be seen. There's obviously a lot of legend about how the discovery took place. You know, a light shining in the night, leading a um, uh, a peasant to um, the site of the burial, and uh, three sets of bones being found there. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that some old burial was found is uh, is probably not um, not at all impossible. In fact, quite likely. Um, whose bones they were, who knows? But in any case, the local bishop said, "Hmm, this is an opportunity for um, for doing something creative, and I bet they are the bones of James." And he probably made that bet on the basis of some of these traditions that were popping up in the uh, 8th century, maybe as early as the 7th century, that had James going to uh, to Spain. And those traditions are rather like uh, the traditions at the other end of the Christian world about Thomas going to India. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're traditions that um, that people develop as legends to uh, make a connection between their Christian community and some sort of um, early stage of the movement. So uh, I think that's uh, that's kind of what happened. Um, in order to have some sort of uh, cult of uh, a relic of, of some important saint, uh, you want someone who's an intimate of Jesus. Peter is taken. Um, so you go with someone else uh, that can't be falsified. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you go with James. So uh, here's a complicated question, but I'm really curious for your thoughts, uh, given your, your expertise and, and your own personal beliefs. All of the evidence suggests that those aren't the remains of the Apostle James under right. Santiago de Compostela. And yet, there is this pilgrimage that took off that's now been in existence for 1,200 years. Does, right. does, the, does the likelihood that those are not the remains of the Apostle James diminish the pilgrimage in any way? Does it compromise it? Like, how do you, how do you reconcile the historical reality with the, the greater complexities of faith and religion? Right. Well, uh... I guess I take the attitude that uh, is evident in some of the Vatican pronouncements uh, about uh, these things, uh, which uh, is that um, these relics, uh, they, they, the Vatican is very very cautious uh, in talking about any of these things, uh, relics of individual saints or the grail or two that you can find scattered in various places uh, around Spain, um, or the Sudarion of Orvieto, uh, you know, there were lots of um, relics from the medieval period, and the, the Vatican doesn't uh, say anything about their uh, authenticity. That what they say is that they remind us of the um, uh, the person uh, for whom they stand, and that reminder um, 
is uh, salutary for our faith. Mm. So, so in so insofar as they do that, I'm fine. You know, I yeah. I, I don't have any problem with relics being uh, being identified in uh, in legendary form by uh, by individual believers or church communities who have interest in promoting pilgrimage to their site. You know, that happened in the past. Uh, but they they serve for a person of faith. I think as a reminder of uh, the uh, the community to which we belong and for which uh, we stand. I'd like to wrap up with a couple of questions that are more broadly focused on pilgrimage. How far back in the early Christian tradition do we find the roots of pilgrimage as a sacred act? Um, you know, pilgrimage really gets uh, underway in a major fashion. Um, in the fourth century, after the uh, Christianization of the uh, the Roman Empire, and we have reports by people coming from uh, France and Spain, um, the, the pilgrimage uh, by Algeria or Assyria, uh, probably from Galicia, uh, that is from the area where um, the uh, bones of James were finally revered. Um, that goes back to the fifth century, and before that, the Bordeaux pilgrim. So we have people going from uh, from Europe uh, to uh, the Holy Land. Uh, mm-hmm. Once the Holy Land becomes uh, a center of of um, Christian um, uh, Christian activity, once Constantine and his mother had built a basilica in Jerusalem, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, now that that whole movement within Christianity. Um, draws on various uh, images and symbols which are in Scripture. Uh, you have, uh, for instance, Jesus talking about himself as the way, mm-hmm. uh, the way, the truth, and the life in the Gospel of, of John. What does it mean to follow on the way mm-hmm. um, or to be on the way? Well, you can start imagining a pilgrimage. Um, uh, and you have uh, Jesus being portrayed as leading his disciples, in effect, on a pilgrimage, if you will, to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and things like the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the middle chapters of, of that gospel from uh, about chapter 8 through chapter uh, 18 uh, uh, are constantly referring to the, the progression of, the, of Jesus and his disciples to, to Jerusalem. And then in the book of Acts, you have uh, the Christian movement described as the way. Mm. So you put all these things together, you start thinking about, well, I want to be on the way with Jesus, and I want to follow in his footsteps, and he invites people to come and follow him. So you have all these biblical invitations to movement in conformity with Jesus, and that provides a kind of theological framework for thinking about um, pilgrimage. Mm. Uh, You have secular things going on, too. You have, um, in uh, antiquity, the uh, development of tourism uh, from the second century on. Things Mm. like Strabo's geography and the like uh, are uh, efforts to provide a a handbook for people who want to make the grand tour of the ancient Roman world. Uh, so uh, it's understood that uh, travel can be educational, and if you're coming at this through a, uh, a Christian perspective, then the kind of travel you want to do is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and um, go on a, uh, some sort of pilgrimage. That's great. Uh, yeah, and uh, so then you have different sites for uh, where you want to go. So uh, Jerusalem is, uh, is first, then Rome, mm-hmm. and then... Um, then Santiago de Compostela. And why Santiago de Compostela? Well, as I, as I mentioned, I think you have, back in the ninth century, the local bishop who decides, eh, well, maybe this could be a, um, a useful way of, of um, uh, forming a cathedral and getting some attention. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't, it doesn't take off until uh, the 11th and 12th century. 
and uh, what really pushes it is um, the um, work of a bishop at that point, uh, Bishop Chalmiris, mm-hmm. uh who uh, is probably responsible for something uh, that we know of as the Codex Calixtinus, mm-hmm. uh, which is the medieval document that has um, the uh, traditions about the uh, the mission of James to um, to Spain and all the legends connected with it, and um, they do uh, legends about the discovery of his bones, etc. All that stuff is in there, uh, as well as um, an account of, of pilgrimage for the Franks. And the mm-hmm. Franks uh, were important pilgrims coming down to to Santiago during this period, and it was very much in the interest of the bishops and kings in northern Spain. Uh, from the ninth century down through the high middle ages uh, to get people coming in their direction um, for all sorts of reasons, but mainly because they needed support in their effort to reconquer Spain from the wars. Yeah. Um, and so that's the, the general political social background of, of uh, the pilgrimage stuff mm. and why, why Santiago comes to be such an important place because it's uh, the, the end point of this pilgrim, pilgrim route for uh, the uh, the overland route for the Franks mm-hmm. could also come there, uh, as you know, from uh, from England um, by boat, and later when the uh, reconquest has happened, you come up from the south and from Portugal. So there are all sorts of routes to Santiago, but the mm-hmm. first and major route was the Fra- uh, French route uh, that brought in lots of stuff. And you can see this in the architecture of northern Spain, mm-hmm. the cathedral at Burgos, or the cathedral at Lyon, their um, French Gothic architecture, and uh, stained glass, and uh, statuary, and everything else. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it worked. Yeah, absolutely. One last question for you. You have spent some time on the Camino de Santiago, so you've seen the modern incarnation of pilgrimage. Is there mm-hmm. anything that you know, based on your study of of early Christianity, pilgrimage tradition, that you think modern pilgrims should have in mind that would help inform, guide, or shape their experiences on pilgrimage today? Hmm. Um, I, I think one useful thing to uh, to keep in mind for anybody who goes on the pilgrimage route is that there are as many different ways of making a pilgrimage as there are pilgrims. Mm. And um, that that is brought out in so many of the um, the books and even movies. Uh, you know, the the great movie by uh, uh, Charlie Sheen, The Way, mm-hmm. uh, it points out just how many different attitudes there were to the whole thing. So I think having a little humility about it um, and um, be, being uh, willing to to um, free yourself from the the things that keep you from going on the way. That one of the best parts of, of being a pilgrim is just giving all uh, the rest of the stuff that you regularly do up for a while mm-hmm. and uh, withdrawing from it and being focused on something else, mm-hmm. whatever that something is, whether it's discovering something about yourself, discovering something about the religious tradition, or just standing back and um, being awestruck by the, uh, the beauty of the land and the, um, the architectural uh, wonders that you see. Mm-hmm. So... Um, pilgrim, pilgrimage takes a variety of forms and um, can lead to a variety of us- usually beneficial results. Yeah. Dr. Atchers, thank you so much for your time. I've learned something today. It's been great speaking with you. Okay, you're quite welcome. I'm talking with Mirka Martin from the Pacific Northwest. Mirka completed her pilgrimage in September. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Mirka. Thanks 
for having me, Dave. I'm happy to be here. So tell me about your pilgrimage. Where did you walk? Uh, when did you do it? And and just some some initial impressions on what the experience was like. I mean, there's so many initial impressions. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I began my Camino on August 1st um, from St. Jean-Pierre de Port and okay. took a an extraordinary amount of time as compared to other pilgrims. Mm-hmm. And I finished in Santiago on the 24th of September and then made my way not by foot um, onto Fistera and onto Mushia after that. That's great. Um, what was, what was, was August a, like? August was hot. <laughs> <laughs> it so, was real hot. <laughs> It was a really hot summer in Europe. Um, I was in France in July, and it was similarly just scorching all summer. It was um, it was a lot to get used to all at once. Um, I definitely I thought I had everything dialed before I left, and I was really excited that my pack weight was reasonable. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turns out, when it's ninety five degrees outside, nothing <laughs> feels quite light enough. Yeah, that is true. It's the busiest month on the Camino. It's the vacation month in Spain and France. Did it feel overwhelmingly crowded? You know, that was um, that was a sweet lesson for me. I was totally unaware that all of Europe would be hanging out in Spain. <laughs> um, you know, it didn't feel overwhelmingly crowded for me personally mm-hmm. until we hit the last 100 kilometers, which was way after vacation was over for people. Um, there were definitely days where I took some space and time to myself because I was walking pilgrimage alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think anybody who's ever walked it recognizes that we're really never alone. Sure. <laughs> um, because you're always encountering people on any given day. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some overwhelming days for sure. Um, when I thought out either the enormity of a huge albergue to have some anonymity mm-hmm. um, or vice versa, you know, seeking out a 10-bed private albergue so that there was some silence to be had. So, as you said, you took a you took a longer time than is typical on the Camino, and that's, that's a great thing to have the opportunity to do. What was behind that decision and, and how, looking back on it, what do you think you got from the experience that you might not have if you had done it in, you know, the month to 35 days that that others typically do it in? Mm -hmm. It was such a tremendous gift for myself to do it in this way. Um, And it was so many decisions came together. Um, I, in my life, almost never have such a chunk of time to leave and and be away from my professional life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the tickets are, are not super cheap. And so I decided to take the full 90 days that as an American I get to have mm-hmm. over there um, and sort of put everything on hold and packed my bag and, and started walking. Um, the gift of time can't be underestimated. I had some of the most magical experiences which is not to say that in, you know, 32 days, people won't also have the opportunity. Sure. But if I decided that I wanted to stop walking for the day because I was enjoying a particular environment or particular people who were also not walking on, if I wanted to stay and have a slow day or stay and have a quiet day or could sort of dive into whatever delight I stumbled (laughs) on, Mm -hmm. 
I, I wasn't pressed for time and wasn't concerned that I wasn't making, you know, my sort of minimum kilometers every day. You know, that was sort of the hot topic question, like, hey, what, what are you averaging every day? Yeah. And my a- answer was often, uh, it can't be averaged. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was a day that I literally walked less than five kilometers because I wanted to stay at a specific toddler gate and I nice. had time and space to do it. Mm-hmm. What was... The one... Go ahead. The one caution that I would throw out there to anybody who's interested in doing that is that it definitely throws your budget. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> because now you're, you know, you're paying for more food and you're paying for places to stay um, on a greater, on a greater detail. So just to sort of pack that into your budget planning. Yep. How did you, so you had no schedule, you had no plans going into this Camino. Is that correct? My plan was to finish. That's at it. some point before the 90 <laughs> days was up. <laughs> That's awesome. Did you generally stay in albergues every day? I did. I did. Um, and I generally looked, I really wanted to seek out uh, opportunities for authentic connection, mm-hmm. which of course happen every day on a Camino in one way or another. Um, I really wanted the sort of... Mm, like juicy, raw, um, oh, what other words can I think about? Just that really deeply authentic connection with people. Um, and so I often sought out some of the smaller spaces, mm-hmm. um, unless I was feeling overwhelmed and just needed to disappear for a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was so, I was so well met by that to have really, really beautiful, intimate, connections with, you know, 15 of my fellow pilgrims or even 30, if you can call that an intimate experience, Mm -hmm. to just have time to share story um, in some really unhurried and beautiful ways. Given your approach, you have potentially a perspective on albergues that others don't because you got to really be deliberate and seek out the ones (laughs) that were calling to you. So what are a couple of albergues that stand out in your memory as being particularly significant? Mm-hmm. The Sun Bowl mm-hmm. was tre- tremendously profound for me. Um, I had a really, really, really wonderful evening, particularly with Hospitalera, Sandra, who works there. Um, it was one of the most heartwarming, heartfelt, inspiring evenings for me. Um, Albergue Gaia um, is run by a lovely woman in Mancia de las Mulas. Mm. Um, and likely that was, I awoke to that albergue on my 40th birthday. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it was such a beautiful way to start my 40th year mm-hmm. sitting in her kitchen after everybody else had already gone because I was not in a hurry to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and having some really profound conversations, not in English, which was additionally joyful for me. <laughs> <laughs> what was... Yeah. So those were those were great moments, and it sounds like on the whole, it was a, a remarkably uh, profound experience for you. Were there were there challenges or setbacks along the way? Ah, <laughs> uh, challenges, <laughs> Oppor- uh, opportunities for growth. Sure. sure. <laughs> um, I mean, of course, the first thing that comes to mind. Um, I got the opportunity to tango a few times with bed bugs. 
which was oh, never, yeah. never really ideal. Um, and that also turned itself into a learning opportunity and a, a chance for me to surrender and let go of mm-hmm. my need to always be in control. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which was a beautiful gift. Uh, I, I didn't love it at the time, and it makes for a really great story. Let's um, talk. Let's talk about bed bugs for a second because I feel like. Bed bugs have become this giant bogeyman for pilgrims, as though <laughs> if it strikes you on Camino, it's just like one step, uh, you know, above death. Um, and, uh-huh. and, but in, it's it's rough in the like I had my first bed bug experience a year ago, and yeah, it's kind of rough and unnerving, but it's not as cataclysmic as people lead on, or at least that's my experience. What was yours? I mean, I would agree with that. Certainly the first experience that I had with them left me a little bit more um, displeased. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are so many other ways to be violated in this world, but having something <laughs> noshing on your body in the middle of the night yeah. <clears throat> is har- hardly a fun date. Um, you know, by the time I I got them again several weeks down the Camino, I actually had the opportunity to stay in a woman's home for a couple days. Hmm. And I walked in and, you know, I said, I'm so grateful to be here. And I got bed bugs. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, let's just get that on the table. Those aren't the, um, the guests was, that you want to bring. Right. <laughs> and she looked at me and she's like, they're just bed bugs. They're just doing what they do. Get over it. Hmm. Were her exact words to me. And in that moment, I was able to take my first deep breath around that topic because it, it really is true. They're not deadly. They're a nuisance. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's difficult to find a dryer. Yep. Sometimes it's difficult to find a washer. And at the end of the day, life goes on. Mm-hmm. I also happen to not be super allergic to them. And I know that there are people who were really profoundly impacted That's a good point. by that experience. And I'm not one of them. And so for those people out there who happen to be highly allergic. My heart goes out to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I pre-treated all of my sleeping bag, my liner, my backpack, and it ended up being a tremendous load mm-hmm. energetically for me to continue to carry. And once I finally was able to surrender to it, I didn't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah. What, you know? I, I think I cut you off when, uh, you were talking about other opportunities for growth. Was there something else you wanted to talk about? <laughs> you know, I think that the the Camino has a tremendous way of um, of gutting us as humans mm-hmm. <laughs> in really in really profoundly beautiful ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I one of my biggest concerns before I left was uh, walking with a really old injury that I have from a snowboarding accident. Mm-hmm. You know, and hearing all kinds of stories from people about how physically arduous the the Camino can be, and um, it just was it was a concern for me before I left, and so I was pleasantly surprised that my body continued to carry me despite that injury that I have. Mm-hmm. And moving forward, it wasn't probably five days before we arrived in Santiago that my ankle had a whole lot to say. Oh, no. Um, I had a lot of opportunities to tame my ego. Mm-hmm. And that day was one of the biggest, longest, hardest 
emotionally challenging days for me on the Camino mm. um, because I had to be really vulnerable. I had to end up sending my backpack ahead mm-hmm. for the first time in, you know, over 400 miles. Um, I had to say uncle and I had to surrender and that was sort of a continual theme for me along the Camino and I'm, I'm grateful for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was really hard for me. It was hard for me to tell people to walk on when they wanted to stay and help and there wasn't really a place for them to help. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, feeling feeling weak in your body at that point is was a challenge for me. It's a moment where you feel like you should be as strong as you've ever been, right? It feels, did it feel, um, did it feel like betrayal in that moment? <laughs> That's the first word that came to mind, actually. Mm. It did, and it was, it was surprising for me, um, because when, when my ankle has a lot to say, it usually comes on without any warning. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, to feel like somebody just filleted the bottom of your foot off, um, and you have 27 kilometers to walk. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little imposing on the day. And, um, and it was also really beautiful for me to have to listen to my body. Mm-hmm. I went on this journey as part of a year long self care sabbatical, mm-hmm. um, due to a number of events that have happened in the last year and a half. Um, and I think that I had been ignoring some of that self care mm-hmm. and my body had every intention to remind me about why I started in the first place. <laughs> One last lesson so, before you arrive. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. And it was profound. Yeah. You were traveling alone and it's, it's a subject that many people wonder about. I think Many women traveling alone have some concerns, understandably so, about safety. And the story involving Denise Thiem's disappearance and murder certainly brought those concerns back to the forefront. What was your experience like as a a woman traveling alone on the Camino? Mm -hmm. I had a great deal of concern when I first heard about that story back Mm -hmm. in April. it didn't impact my choice to go. It definitely had an impact on the people in my life who loved me and wanted to see me return safely. Yeah. <laughs> um, I moved forward on that pilgrimage from a place of really deep trust, or at least trying to dive into that, um, and feeling really certain about my intuition and my capacity to communicate while I was over there. And, um, and by the time I left, not feeling particularly intimidated by that piece Mm -hmm. and recognizing like, if that's going to be my story, that will be my story. It would be an unfortunate ending. And my heart goes out to her family deeply, 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 um, sad for their loss. Mm -hmm. And I also couldn't, take my first step without surrendering to that possibility without dwelling in it as you had these conversations with people they would I imagine many of them they were unfamiliar with pilgrimage and what you were taking on what you were doing as you've come home and you've tried to 
explain what it was like. How how do you explain pilgrimage to people at home, people who have not been on it before? Mm. That's a challenging question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I almost cut people off before they even start speaking to me because mm-hmm. <laughs> they're going to want to ask me, how was it? And that question <laughs> is impossible. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> And, and I lead them. I, you know, I tell anybody who has any questions for me that their questions really need to be directed and pointed and not these open-ended, you know, broad strokes. It's so impossible for me to answer those questions. You know, and certainly stories would unfold as those questions would come. Pilgrimage is so deeply personal. Um, and it's so different for everybody. You know, I think there are people on the Camino that had really brilliant beautiful, explosive transformation that happened, you know, in a heartbeat. That wasn't my experience. I had beauty, abundant beauty. I had delight. I had magic. I had beautiful people that I got to encounter. Um, The nuances about how I have shifted and how I am changed are still unfolding for me. I worry sometimes Uh about people developing this expectation that they're going to have this epiphany as they mm-hmm. walk on pilgrimage or as they arrive in Santiago. And, and it's great if that does happen. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. But I think in, in many more cases, it's more of a slow burn that continues to play out <laughs> upon return. I definitely agree with that. I, um, I was very intentional about not putting the weight of that expectation on this journey. Mm-hmm. I've been waiting for 14 years to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I first learned about the trail in 2001. So there could have been a huge potential for me to be devastated and disappointed if mm-hmm. I had placed any expectation. Um, and so truly I packed my bags and my only goal was to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like if there's, I mean, if there's two things that I could tell people, it would be one, to not to not place gravity of that nature mm-hmm. into this experience, but go with an open heart and an open mind and flexibility. And two, to take take all the time that you possibly can take to make it happen. That's awesome. Because there's there's beauty that unfolds when you can step away from a schedule. You know, and our lives are usually mm-hmm. so rigorous and so planned and um if you're stepping away from that place to really let something come rushing in, like to put a schedule on it was too overwhelming a thought for me. Mirka Martin, thank you very much for sharing your pilgrimage stories with me. Thanks for being interested. If you're like me, it's sometimes hard to carve out time for leisure reading when you're working all the time and, you know, you just get into the flow of everyday life. And so one of the nice things about the holidays and vacation is the opportunity to pick up a book and spend a few hours reading every once in a while. And so I wanted to give you some suggestions for pilgrimage-related books that you could read in the realm of fiction. So I'm not focusing here on pilgrim journals, pilgrim narratives, though those are 
certainly great reading, and I definitely enjoy those. We'll talk about those at some point. But I want to focus on fiction because it's sometimes harder to track down the fictional options related to the Camino de Santiago that can offer another interesting perspective on the route. By and large, these aren't books explicitly focused on pilgrimage, but rather on the places that you walk through along the Camino de Santiago. So we'll move geographically along the Camino here. In the first region, Navarre, the classic text to pick up is the Song of Roland. It's a French epic poem on the Moorish assault on Charlemagne's rear guard and the heroic stand led by his nephew Roland. You really can't understand Roncesvalles without this, so it's worth reading. It's not long. It's about 100 pages and pretty easy to work your way through for what it is. It is epic poetry, of course, so it's, it's maybe not the easiest thing to unpack. But the plot's straightforward, and it's highly relevant to the route that you cross as you proceed from Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port to Roncesvalles and beyond that into Pamplona. It's also worth looking into the historic backstory behind the Song of Roland and its implications for both the Basque country and Christian Muslim relations. It's a really important text, and sometime down the road, maybe we'll talk about the history of it. But for starters, check out the poem. Also relevant to Navarre is Hemingway's Sun Also Rises. You know, Ernest Hemingway is inextricably linked with Pamplona. This novel, The Sun Also Rises, made the running of the bulls in Pamplona famous to an international audience. But the novel also features an extended fishing trip in the Borghete region. Borghete is the village that's just after Roncesvalles. And while the plot of the novel may not be especially relevant to pilgrims, though certainly there are some who share some of these experiences, I imagine, um, the setting is perfect and quite revealing and, and will help you really get into the flow of things in Borghete. And for those who are really into Hemingway, you can... Complete your experience by staying at the Hostal Borghete in the room that Ernest Hemingway actually used when he was vacationing there. Moving ahead to Castilla Leon and skipping La Rioja, apologies to Rioja, we have another work of epic poetry that is critical to the history of the route and the region. It's the Poem of the Cid, and it's a Castilian epic poem focused on the medieval warrior Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar, a.k.a. El Cid. It's an excellent text for understanding the politics of the Reconquista, particularly if supplemented with historical analysis. Again, it's something that we should dive into at some point because it is so illustrative and evocative for the region and the Camino. As is true with the Song of Roland, history in this poem is being transformed into legend in order to serve broader objectives. The action takes place in many spots along the Camino, and as those who've passed through Burgos are aware, El Cid and Doña Jimena, his wife's tombs, are located in the center of the Burgos Cathedral. So to really understand what you're looking at in Burgos, 
you've got to read this poem. A newer entry into the canon of Camino-related fiction is The Moorish Whore by American expat Rebecca Scott, who lives on the Camino in Moratinos, a small village in the Meseta. This is historical fiction focused on the Moorish princess Zaida, who was married to Alfonso VI, king of Castileon, converted and then changed her name to Isabel. She lived in Saagun, which is in the center of the Meseta. While Zaida's history has been largely glossed over, Rebecca digs deeply in an attempt to reconstruct her story, and in the process, she opens a window into this place and time about a thousand years ago on the Meseta, which was in some ways the high point for the region. So it's, uh, it's a great window into the history of a place that has seen many centuries pass it by. Proceeding into Galicia, one of the major works of literature is authored by the great Galician author Emilia Pardo Bazan, and the title is Los Pazos de Ulloa, or The House of Ulloa. And it's a 19th century work of literature in which a priest is sent to the Ulloa manor house only to discover that corruption, the rot of corruption and decadence has set in. And it's a great look at Galician country life in the 19th century. And to me, it feels a bit like Emily Bronte in the way it describes the the setting, the scenery, and the culture of the rural folk. What's really nice to note is that the house itself that is the setting for the novel still exists, and it's roughly one kilometer down the road from Casa Domingo in Casanova, which is just a handful of kilometers after Palasto Rey in Galicia. So it's possible to stay there and then stroll down and see the home at the center of the novel. One other novel, a contemporary piece that's worth noting, is Therapy by David Lodge. And if you've ever encountered David Lodge, you know that he writes some very humorous fiction. And this, too, is a rollicking good time. And as you read it, you might wonder where the Camino comes in. But be patient. You'll get there. Linda Davidson, the co-author of one of the great resources on the the Camino, once described the uh, pilgrimage route is functioning as a deus ex machina in the novel, and I've always thought that description was quite helpful and and insightful. So I'll leave it at that. So there's a handful of works of fiction to consider to add some depth to your understanding of the route. I hope you check them out and enjoy, and I'll provide direct links to these on the northerncaminos.com slash podcast page to help you find them in case you want to pick up a copy and enjoy a few hours this holiday reading. And that's it for this episode of the Camino Podcast. Thanks as always for listening. I'm really excited about how great this podcast has started off. It's really neat to see people listening and to know that there are people all over the world checking out the podcast. Please get in touch if you'd like to be involved, if you have any feedback for me. Camino Podcast 
at gmail.com. Just as a reminder, you can find us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, and you can always find the archives on northerncaminos.com. Thanks for listening in 2015, and I'm looking forward to a 2016 full of podcasts and pilgrimage.